We are up to mitzvah number 62, and today we're going to cover mitzvah number 62 and number 511, because they are very related, and this is a very interesting, and I would say somewhat foreign subject, and that is the subject of sorcery. Mitzvah 511, we're told that Jews are prohibited from practicing sorcery, and mitzvah number 62 is the mitzvah that requires the court, the Beistin, to oversee the punishment of sorcerers, namely capital punishment. This is obviously quite a mysterious subject. And I would add, to compound the mysteriousness, if you look at the Talmud, you'll find that this subject was actually mysterious and unknown even to the sages of the Talmud about 2,000 years ago. But I think that even though this subject is somewhat foreign to us, when we look at the commentaries and how they explain the subject, I think there's some very, very valuable lessons, I would say structural theological lessons that are there for us, even in a subject that is very distant from us. So again, two mitzvos, one a prohibition against sorcery, and number two, that sorcerers are punished with the death sentence. So what is sorcery? So the Sefer Chinach, the book that we're using to guide us through the mitzvos, he gives us a little bit of understanding as to what this is or what this was. And he tells us that sorcery is when people do all kinds of machinations with various plants and various stones and various things that people use, and they mix them together at specific times of the day and specific times of the calendar year that are designated for those kinds of results. And this is inappropriate for us. We should rely on God and the ways of the sorcerers are evil and we have to avoid them completely. And it's also reminiscent of idolatry. And then he elaborates on the nature of sorcery. This is the part that I found quite fascinating. Sorcery, according to my opinion, is as follows. The Almighty, in the initial creation of the world, he assigned everything in the world a distinct nature. And a nature that has a good and a proper function for the benefit of humanity. So everything the matter created has its, its nature, its function, and that ultimately is positive for creation for humanity. In addition, each thing, each thing that they might create in the world has a heavenly force above. Everything in the physical world has a counterpart in the spiritual world. Think of it as an angel that's overseeing it. And that provides influence. It provides like kind of a divine filter, the relationship between the heavenly sphere and the physical sphere between the spiritual world and our world is governed, so to speak, via this pipeline, via this connection that there's this angel above guiding the thing below. So that's the way things are normally. But in addition to every item's normal function, there are ways to manipulate 
the normal function, the natural function, and turn it into something else. And that is done by taking various things, again, it's, it's very mysterious, very hidden, very opaque, but taking various things and grafting and mixing things that don't normally go together, mix them together, and that can result in something new, something that's not productive, something that's destructive, and that is what the Almighty is prohibiting here. So the way he explains it is that there are certain domains. There's The Almighty created everything within its own domain to be perpetuated according to its nature, but sorcery is taking things from different domains, forking them, grafting them together for some destructive purpose. When I was reading this, I was thinking that creativity, that's a good thing, that's being creative, that's being productive. But creativity is also similar to this idea. You take ideas or concepts that normally apply or in our minds apply only in one domain and you port them over to a different domain and you create something new. That's a positive, constructive version of this idea. Sorcery, the way he's defining it, is solely for destructive purposes and that's why it's prohibited. And he quotes the Talmud. The Talmud says that if someone is doing sorcery or this kind of mechanism, this kind of process, for a medicinal purpose, then it's permitted. It's only prohibited when it's being used for destructive purposes, but when it is for constructive purposes, then it's okay. So the first idea that we're finding here is kind of the, the layout of the way the might created the world and how someone does sorcery in a destructive manner is corrupting the normal order of you know the divine blueprint. And because it's destructive, it's prohibited. But then he adds another point. When someone does sorcery in this kind of manner, it's going to upstage. It's going to negate the heavenly forces. And the way he explains it is, you have thing A, and it has its normal course of, of action, so to speak. And you have thing B, and you mix them together. And by doing that, you're actually negating the two inputs and creating a brand new third output. And I would say it's like similar to, to grafting. When you graft or, or you mate, you mate the, the horse and the donkey, the horse and the donkey disappear and the mule appears. There's something new that wasn't there, but you have, in order to create something new, you have to negate what was there previously. And as a result, he explains on a philosophical level, someone who does this sorcery is actually trying to undo creation. He's saying that the Almighty's world and the, the input, so to speak, that he gives us are insufficient. We need to create something new that wasn't there hitherto. And that is another reason why this is prohibited. You're trying to tamper with the divine intent. And he explains that there's mitzvahs that are upcoming of prohibited mixtures. Like wool is fine, linen is fine. The mixture of the two is what we call shotness. And similarly, when you plant, you can plant certain produce 
mixed together with other produce. We can graft various trees and things like that because of this idea. The Almighty gives us wool and linen, and both of them independently are useful, are, are positive, are the Almighty's plan. We create the new thing, and that is tampering, so to speak, with the divine intent. And he stresses that, of course, the Almighty allows that, but he guides us against it for these reasons. So that's the basic layout of what sorcery is. And he finds it important to tell us that demons and sorcery, those are different things. And he quotes a verse. The verse tells us that the ancient Egyptians, when they would do their magic and their sorcery, they would do one kind of sorcery that was just sorcery and one kind of sorcery that was demon work and they're different things and it's important for us to know that. So that's the basic layout of this idea. Now the Talmud tells us that just as with the laws of Shabbos, there are certain things that are completely prohibited and there are certain things that are only partially prohibited. You can't do it, but if you do it, the court won't judge you. And there's a third category of things that are completely permitted. You're allowed to do them on Shabbos, no problem. So too, with regards to sorcery, there are three levels. There are things that are part of this capital offense. That's the highest level, the highest degree of prohibition. There are things that are not allowed, but if someone does it, the court does not adjudicate them, and there are things that are permitted completely. When someone does actual sorcery, says the Talmud, that is a capital offense. When someone does sleight of hand, it looks like sorcery, but it really isn't sorcery. That is prohibited, but the court will not adjudicate it. And what's something that's like magical, but is actually permitted completely? That is like the story of Rav Hanina and Rav, o- Rav Oshia, two sages of the Talmudic era. Every Friday, they would study Torah together. And what book would they study? They would study the book called Sefer Yitzira, the book of creation, or the book of formation. And they would create, via their study, they would create an animal, a calf, that they would eat on Shabbos. What's for dinner? I'm going to study, and we'll come home with Shabbat dinner. And Rashi explains that when they would study this book, it's a very Kabbalistic book, obviously, but this book is or contains the same principle, so to speak, that God used to create the world. And even though I'm creating something new that didn't exist prior, but it's completely permitted because it comes from a place of holiness. Whereas when someone does sorcery, they're also creating something new that hitherto has not existed, but it's coming from a place of impurity, and that's why it is prohibited. Now, the Talmud gives us four stories of sorcery, interesting stories, as we shall see. But to me, this indicated the Talmud is collecting anecdotes, because even in the times of the Talmud, I would imagine that these were very unusual occurrences, and therefore the Talmud is going to say, okay, well, this happened here, and this happened there. These are isolated events. At the time the Talmud's written, these skills... This black magic, this sorcery is already a dying art. People don't exactly know how to do it. And therefore, when you do see a little bit of sorcery, it's something which is noteworthy and you want to share it with your friends. So the first story it tells us is Rav Ashi. Rav Ashi is one of the codifiers of the Talmud. 
And he says, I saw Karna's father. Karna, his father. He was a sorcerer. And the trick that he would do is that he would blow his nose and out of his nostrils came rolls of silk. That was his trick. And that was his sorcery. He was a sorcerer. And that's what I saw him do. That's the first story that we see. Rav, Rav is one of the earliest of the authors of the Talmud. He's think of him as the third century sage who goes to Babylon and establishes some of the great academies in Babylon. He relates the following anecdote, and these are all brought in quick succession in the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin, page 67b. He said, I saw an Arab merchant who took a sword and sliced up a camel into small pieces. He killed the camel. And then he was beating a drum and the camel arose from the dead. What a trick. So the sage, Rav Chia, that he shared this information with, he said, well, was there blood on the floor? If there's no blood on the floor, you should know that's not real sorcery. Because that was just deception. That was sleight of hand. That was David Copperfield. That was a trick. It wasn't real. The Talmud gives a third story of a individual by the name of Ze'iri. He went to Egypt. Now, elsewhere in the Talmud, we're told that Egypt was the center of sorcery. Even in the Torah, Moshe does the tricks in front of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is completely not impressed because he says to him, you came to the epicenter of sorcery. Everyone could do this. Even small kids could do it. But Ze'iri, he ends up in Alexandria. He goes to the marketplace and he wants to find a donkey. So he finds a donkey. It looks pretty sturdy. And he buys it. And then he gives the animal to drink. And the water washes away the magic. And it turns out it wasn't really a donkey. It was a board of wood. So he runs back to the seller and he says to him, this is a fraud. You didn't give me, you tricked me. So he says, okay, I'm going to refund your money. But you should know that you're the only person that comes to Egypt and doesn't inspect the product beforehand because you know this place is full of sorcerers. Everyone's got to pour water on their animals just to make sure that it's actually legit. And by the way, the commentaries tell us that water was actually used to wash away the spell, so to speak, and to determine whether something was legit or it was just a concoction of some sorcery. And finally, Tama tells us a fourth story of a gentleman by the name of Yanai who comes to a certain inn and he wants to drink and they bring him a drink and he sees that the innkeeper is making all kinds of incantations as he's holding the cup of water. So he realizes that something is amiss. He takes a little bit of the water and he pours it onto the floor. And instantly the water turns into scorpions. And he realizes this is a trick. So he makes believe like he, like he drinks it. And then he says to her, okay, I drink from your water. Now you drink from mine. And he too does sorcery into the drink and he gives her the drink and she turns into a donkey. And he takes this donkey 
and he rides into the marketplace. But then this woman's friend comes and she undoes the sorcery. And then suddenly he's riding on top of the woman. That's the final story that Talmud tells us. Evidently, this kind of ability existed in the past. And the sages of the Talmud actually witnessed certain examples of sorcery. Some of them were not real sorcery. It looked like sorcery. It was just sleight of hand. Some of it was legitimate sorcery. But regardless, this kind of ability did exist in the past. And it is prohibited by Torah law. Now, the Sefer Chinuch, he tells us that if someone is to be a judge on a case of sorcery, they had better acquaint themselves with these practices. Because if you want to adjudicate such a question, such a question, such a law, you have to know what are the methods, what are the practices, what's legit, what's not, what are the modus operandi of the sorceress. The Talmud gives us a story of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva and his friends went to visit Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer, you may remember, he is one of the sages, who was the greatest sage in the land, but was excommunicated for refusing to accept the ruling of the Sanhedrin. So he's very old, and the sages say, we want to visit him because he's very sick. And they come visit him, but they make sure they maintain a distance, like a social distancing. Because when someone is excommunicated, you can't be in their immediate proximity. So they make sure that they stay four cubits away from him. And they start discussing matters of Torah with him. And in the middle of the discussion, he tells them, I'll be shocked if any of you die a natural death. And when you hear that from Rabbi Lezir, of course, it spooked them. Rabbi Tiva intervened, and he said, well, what about my death? Is it going to be a natural death? And he says, you know what? Your death is going to be even worse than your colleague's death. And then he begins to lament the fact that he has so much Torah bottled up within him, but now he's going to die, and he's not going to be able to share his Torah with anyone. So he picks up his arms And he says, my arms are like two halves of a Torah scroll, and they're being rolled up. He sensed that his demise was imminent, and he feels bad as he as he elaborates. I studied so much Torah for my teachers, and I taught a lot of Torah, but the amount of Torah that I taught compared to the Torah that I actually know, it's like when you dip an applicator into uh in into some some paint or some ink. There's a lot of ink left and only a tiny bit on the applicator. Moreover, I know 300 laws in the very obscure laws of Tsaras, and no one asked me about them at all. And I also know 300 or 3,000 laws with respect to the planting of cucumbers. Now, what is the planting of cucumbers? That is Talmudic shorthand for the laws of sorcery. I know so much about these laws, but no one asked me. No one ever asked me about them. I was never able to teach them forward, with the exception of Rabbi Akiva. Once, I and him, me and Rabbi Akiva, my student, who is actually present in this conversation. Once, me and him reminisces Rabbi Eliezer. We were walking along the path, 
And he said to me, Rabbi Kiva said to me, teach me about the planting of cucumbers. So I said one thing, and the field that we were adjacent to was filled instantly with cucumbers. And then Rabbi Kiva said to me, you taught me how to plant them. Now tell me how to uproot them. And again, I said another thing, and all the cucumbers gather to one specific spot. That's the story. But this, I think, teaches us that someone like Rabbi Kiva is not just interested in the, you know, the gossip of knowing how to plant the cucumbers, but as a judge, he felt that it was important for him to study these laws, and when he had an opportunity to spend time with his teacher, he taught him a little bit about these laws. But again, these laws are not found anywhere in the Talmud, for obvious reasons. They could be corrupted and used for negative purposes, and therefore we don't really know a lot of the details about how this was done or how these were adjudicated, but we do get certain hints from the stories the Talmud gives us. Now, in the Torah, when the Torah tells us that sorcerers are guilty of capital crimes, and thus they are executed, the way that it is phrased is different than all other instances of capital punishment. In all instances of capital punishment, it says, okay, someone does this crime, you put him to death. However, in chapter 22, verse 17 of the book of Exodus, it doesn't say, it doesn't formulate it like that. It says it the other way around. It says, do not allow a sorcerer to live. It doesn't say, when someone commits sorcery, execute them. It says the opposite. Never allow a sorcerer to live. And the commentaries explain that the reason why it has this unusual formulation, it's because the sorcerers are going to operate in hiding, and therefore the only way to actually get them is if you catch them, and you catch them red-handed, and to do that, you have to trick them. And then you have to pursue them, because they're not going to come to you. You're not going to sit in the court and have a docket. Oh, what's next on the docket? It's a case of sorcery. No, the court is mandated to actually aggressively pursue them, and therefore they're told in the Torah, don't leave them alive. Instead, pursue them vigorously. Now, there's a story in the Talmud to this effect. It's actually referenced, it's featured in Rashi's commentary to the book of Sanhedrin, page 44b. It's sort of a wild story. And I'll go through the story, because it's, I think, really interesting. And intriguing as it is wild it's telling the story of a certain tax collector today of course we hate everyone hates the irs everyone's scared of the irs everyone hates the irs and that was true in yesteryear and it tells that there was a jewish tax collector who was wicked and he died one day but coincidentally on the same day that the evil tax collector died a very righteous person in the city died as well. So there's two concurrent funerals, one of the wicked tax collector, and that's very sparsely attended. It's only his family. And then the entire city comes out to pay their respects to the great Torah scholar. But the cemeteries are outside the city. So the people are outside of the city, outside of civilization, and they're vulnerable. And these processions 
are attacked by bandits. Bandits come and attack the mourners of both funerals. And all the mourners flee. And everyone leaves, with the exception of one student. One student remains. He hides and he remains. After the bandits leave, everyone comes back to continue the funeral. But what happens? They confuse the tax collector and the great sage. And all the the town, they all start bewailing, but they're carrying the wrong beer. They're carrying, they got the wrong guy. And this one student is trying to stop this, and he's trying to correct this perversion, but no one listens to him. The family of the tax collector ends up burying the great sage in ignominy, and the horrific sinner, the tax collector, is given tremendous respect and honor as he's being buried and bewailed by the entire community. After the funeral is over, everyone goes back to their home, and this student is, is just beside himself. How is it possible that such a perversion, such a corruption happened? What sin did his master do to deserve the punishment of being buried in such a, in such an, a dishonorable way? So he's just thinking about this and worrying about this. And one day he gets a dream. His teacher appears to him in a dream. And he says to him, don't worry about me. Come, I'll show you my honor in heaven. And I'll also show you the tremendous punishment that this tax collector is getting in Gehenna. And he goes and he shows him. He's like, look, look what I have. I came out pretty good. And look at this tax collector. He is paying justly for his crimes. But what happened? There was once that I did a sin. I heard someone disparaging a Torah scholar, and I was quiet. I was silent. I didn't protest. And consequently, I was punished. And therefore, I was punished by being buried in a disrespectful way. And this other guy, the career sinner, he once made a big banquet because one of the ministers was coming to visit him. And the minister didn't show up. So he had all this food that he prepared for the minister and it was going to spoil. So he took it. Instead of throwing it out, he gave it to the poor people of the city. So he did one mitzvah. And therefore, he got his reward by being given a very honorable, send away a very honorable funeral. And then the student asked the teacher in the dream, well, for how long will this tax collector have to spend in Gehenim? How much longer is he going to have to suffer? So he tells them he's going to suffer until Shimon ben Shetach dies and takes his spot. Now, this is shocking, because if you remember, when we studied Perke Avos, Chapters of the Fathers, one of the very first sages that are mentioned in Perke Avos is Shimon ben Shetach. He was one of the leaders of the Jewish people, if not the leader of Jewish people, in the era of the Zugos. And now, this deceased sage is telling a student that Shimon ben Shetach, he is going to be put in Gehenna, in the worst place possible, when he dies. So he says to him, why? Why is Shimon Shetach slated for such a terrible punishment? So he tells him because there are a bunch of sorcerers 
in the city of Ashkelon, and he's the leader of Jewish people that's not doing anything about it. And because of his inaction in stopping the sorcery, he's going to be punished in a terrible way. So the next morning, the student wakes up, and he rushes to Shimon Bencheta and tells him the story. So this, of course, shakes Shimon Bencheta into action, and he gets to work. And he starts pursuing these 80 sorcerers. So he takes 80 strong young men, and it was a very rainy day, and he takes 80 jugs or 80 80 cans, 80 barrels, and in each one of them he puts clothing, dry clothing, and he takes them to the location where these sorcerers are located. And he has a whole plan. And he tells his aides, he tells his 80 young men, be very careful, these are very talented sorcerers. Each one of you has to grab a sorcerer and lift them up in the air. Because their power is only in effect when they're touching the ground. But when they're in the air, when they're not connected to the ground, they don't have any power. And the idea, I would say, just speculating, is that our soul, kind of the ho- the holiness, is attached to the heaven. And the impurity comes from the ground. And that's kind of humanity are strung between these two opposites. That's why, you know, we're standing tall. Our soul is pulling us up and our physicality is pulling us down. And therefore, we're kind of suspended midair. But if someone is not connected to the ground then they're not connected to the fountain of impurity, so to speak, and therefore they don't have the ability to do sorcery. So he tells all these 80 people, make sure when you get in, we're going to have to stop them all at once. You have to grab one of these sorcerers, lift them up in the air. So Shimon Chetach walks into this location where the sorcerers, the headquarters, if you will, and he leaves all the young people outside. And they say to him, who are you? What are you doing here? He says, well, I'm a sorcerer. And I wanted to share my craft with you. So they say to him, okay, what kind of sorcery you got? He says, you know what? You know, it's raining outside, right? Pouring. Hurricane. It's a gale outside. I'm going to bring in over here 80 people that are going to be wearing completely dry clothing. Even though it's pouring rain outside. So they say, okay, let's see what you got. So he goes outside and he tells everyone, okay... Come in and slip on your dry clothing. They come in, they slip on their dry clothing. Each one of them grabs one of the sorcerers, lifts them up in the air. And in one day, they execute all 80 sorcerers. The Talmud actually gives an epilogue to the story that the relatives of these sorcerers actually framed the son of Shimon Shetach for the crime that he did not commit. And they got their revenge by having him executed in Jewish court of law because they framed him for a crime that he was not guilty of. That's the story. But this story indicates the idea that when sorcery did exist, there was a requirement in the court to not sit idle and wait for cases of sorcery to come before them, rather to aggressively go out and pursue them and not allow them to continue doing their terrible crimes. So again, we have a mitzvah here. It's not very practical. We didn't, I don't think there's anyone today that, that's able to do these kinds of things. Just as I would imagine, 
The secrets of Torah, the secrets of holiness have been in decline since Sinai. The secrets of impurity are likewise going to decline. Magic today is almost invariably just sleight of hand. Uh, but clearly there was a time where people were able to do this kinds of sorcery. And this is not only prohibited because it's tampering with the ways of God. It's, it's intervening. It's counteracting the divine order that the Almighty wants, but it's actually such a severe sin and causes such a perversion that the Torah says that it is an executable offense. Now, I want to point out there's different kinds of sorcery that we have not discussed yet. There's various forms of necromancy and other forms of this kind of behavior that we're going to get to in the 500s in the, in the book of Deuteronomy. But this particular kind of, of I would say generic sorcery is mitzvah number 62 and mitzvah number 511, the prohibition against sorcery.